Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Excited to continue in our series we're doing right now, which is a series on Great is Thy Faithfulness. And uh, what we'll consider this morning is God's faithfulness uh, to forgive us our sins and the encouragement that we can find in that truth. Uh, Could I pray for us one more time, and then we will jump into this text this morning. God, I so thank you. Thank you for uh, even these prayers that have been offered this morning in our worship, and um, so good to be able to sing together and confess sin together, and to see our brothers and sisters in this room and to meet and greet new folks. Um, I pray that you would continue to meet with us through your word. Lord, I pray that you would uh, speak to my heart and all of ours with the good news of Jesus this morning, that you would um, minister to each one. I don't know the needs in this room. You very well do. And you know exactly what each saint is struggling with and where they go with those struggles, and you have intention to work through your spirit, and I pray that you will. You know those who don't know you, and I pray that you would give them eyes to see Jesus. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture this morning, which is Zechariah chapter 3. While you turn there, I want to sort of try to set up what's going on in this passage. Um, you ever have those moments in your life where someone accuses you of something that you just didn't do? And what do you do? You're, if you're like me, you're super defensive about it, right? You try to uh, cast the blame somewhere else, help someone else see what their problem is, that it's not your problem. You try to clear your name. What do you do, though, when someone accuses you of something Uh, that you did do, (laughs) and they're right, and you were very wrong. If you're like me, in those moments, you're uh, even more defensive. Those moments are less fun. I seek even more to try to blame somebody else, to find reason that it wasn't really my fault, to figure out whose fault it really was, and be even, uh, even more defensive in those moments. We try to clear our name, protect our rep, find someone else to blame, Mostly, though, if we're honest, we're wasting our time because we know in those moments that we're wrong. We know it. But the question is, what are we going to do about that wrong? What are we going to do about it? I want to give some uh, context for the passage that we're about to read. This is a time in Israel's history where they were wrong, and they knew it. There was no one else to blame. They had just uh, come back from exile where God had sent them out of their land because of their own rebellion against Him. And so in this passage, the Israelites are making their way. They've come back to their land. This is around 510 B.C., and they were supposed to be rebuilding the temple. Uh, They started this project, and then a few years in, stopped uh, the project due to lots of different reasons, but they stopped building. and, And the temple is where they are to meet with God. And God wants to meet with them in that place. And so now, 20 years into this project, God sends another prophet, Zechariah, to tell them what they can do to begin meeting with him again. 
And so he gives Zechariah these eight visions, uh, and this all happens in one night. It's like a, a scholars say it's like a New Year's Eve night. Uh, he has eight visions. They're all amazing. Zechariah is a great book to read, uh, but this is the fourth of those visions and, and my favorite. Um, the story is really easy for us to picture. It's a courtroom scene, and it's like a good John Grisham novel. Not that I've really read many of those, but I think there's courtroom scenes in those, or like a an episode of Judge Judy, maybe that's better, or your favorite true crime podcast at the end. It's like that. It's very modern. There's a courtroom scene with all of these different players. There's a judge, a prosecutor, a defendant. There's even witnesses. So let me, let me show you who the parties are. The angel of the Lord is serving as a judge. He is essentially the voice of God in this passage. This is sort of the Lord himself serving as judge, and we're waiting for him to deliver a verdict. Joshua, the high priest, is the one on trial. He's the defendant. He's standing silently before the judge throughout these verses. Now, this Joshua was not Joshua from the Moses Joshua era. This is Joshua from the post-exile era. He was a high priest of Israel. He's the one to represent God's people in the temple. He's mentioned in Haggai and in other places. This is really important um, because he has a role to play for Israel, which we'll see in a minute. The prosecutor is is Satan. Satan is the prosecutor, and he's standing at the right of Joshua accusing him. Now, names are really important in this passage. Um, bookmark that for a minute. Names are really important, and let's talk about Satan's name for a minute. Uh, the word in Hebrew for Satan means accuser, and actually, I'm kind of even saying that backwards. The Hebrew word accuser is Satan. That's where the word comes from. That's what his name means. He's accuser. He's the accuser. And so, verse 1 literally reads, the accusing one is standing at the right side to accuse him. That's what's happening. He's the prosecutor, showing evidence of the defendant's guilt before the court. And then there are the witnesses. There's lots of witnesses, and Zechariah is one of these witnesses. He's almost serving as a courtroom reporter, uh, and courtroom reporters have one job. Type, 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 type. They're not supposed to speak. That's important, too. They have one job, type, 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 record, not speak. He doesn't exactly do that, which we'll also get to in a minute. All right, you ready? Everybody there? Zechariah, if you haven't found it yet, you can go to Matthew, hang left. It's right on the corner. Zechariah chapter 3, and keep your Bibles open because we're going to refer back to these verses a lot this morning. Here we go. And then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these are the words of the Lord. And they will stand forever. My outline this morning is real simple. If you're into outlines, this is it. There's a problem and there's a solution. 
First, the problem. I I hope you caught the problem, at least for the defendant. Joshua the high priest, his job is to represent God's people in God's temple. Specifically as the high priest, he's the one to go and make sacrifices for the nation of Israel on the Day of Atonement, going into the Holy of Holies to make sacrifice, to serve his priestly duties. He's the intermediary for Israel, and one thing that he has to be in order to approach God on behalf of Israel's brokenness and sin and rebellion is he has to be clean. There's all these things that he has to do to be ceremonial clean in order to go into the Holy of Holies. What's the problem? The problem is he is not clean. Did you see it in the passage? The text says that Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Now, that's a bit of a G-rated version of this text. Um, The maybe PG-13 version would be he is uh, covered in excrement. In feces, that's literally the word here, filthy. Children, you have my permission to laugh at this image. He's clothed in gross things. It's a problem. So how can a priest who's supposed to be ceremonial clean enter into the Holy of Holies for God's people if he's wearing unrighteous, soiled robes? Well, the answer is he can't. He can't. He can't go in. He can't make a sacrifice. And if he can't, then Israel is without hope. Because what hope would they have to be restored in their relationship with God because of their own sin? That's the problem, and it's a huge problem. And notice who's making it very sure that everyone knows the problem, and that's Satan. Uh, Now, I should just say for a minute, we really do believe that the evil one is at work in this world. Um, the way in, in which he's working in this text, I believe he's working in our lives too. He is uh, evil, Satan, and he works in evil ways to cause any of us to look away from God and to see only ourselves. And that's exactly what he's doing in this text. He's standing at Joshua's right hand and he's saying, look, look, God, look, judge, look how guilty he is. He's covered in it. And the problem is, this is a very uncomfortable problem in this text, is that he's not wrong. He's not even lying. Now, Satan, of course, is a liar. And he would have us desire for us to believe many things that aren't true. But I also think that he would have us be overwhelmed by the sad things that are true. And so he's pointing out to Joshua and to the court and to the judge, look how dirty he is. Look how hopeless you are. Look how helpless. Look how worthless. Look how broken, beyond repair, the situation is. And this is where we begin to see ourselves in this passage. Because Joshua's problem uh, isn't just Joshua's problem, and it's not just Israel's problem. This is our problem too. Because if the high priest is guilty, in the court of God, then what hope would we have to stand? The reality is I think we need to see our sin before God in order to see our solution. But Satan would have it that we only see our problem and never our solution. So he holds out in the court saying, look, look, look how guilty 
and how dirty you are. And so let me ask you, what would your accuser have you believe about yourself that keeps you seeing only your problem and never your solution? What would he have you see about yourself that keeps you seeing only your problem and never your solution? When we visit our family down in South Alabama, there's this house that we ride by very regularly. This has just popped up in the last few years that sort of always makes me laugh and also a little bit concerned. It's a house that sits on the corner of this four-way stop in a very busy intersection. And uh, I remember when this neighborhood was built just a few years ago in in Troy, Alabama, and this house was built right on the corner, but this street became a cut-through street for a really kind of busy part of town. And it's a four-way stop on this cut-through street, so there's a lot of traffic, and a lot of people are speeding very much through this little neighborhood and, and running through the stop sign. I should also mention Troy is a college town. I don't know if that's relevant to this story, but it feels a little bit relevant. And so lots of people, people, are running through the stop sign, right? Well, there's this house that sits at the corner, and they got really tired of this. And so every time we would go visit, we would find they've, they've made new attempts to slow people down. They would put signs in the yard first. Slow down, those kind of signs. Children are around here, that kind of thing. Then uh, we came by again, and at some point they had petitioned the city to put up some speed bumps, which makes sense, some flashing lights to remind people that there's a stop sign right here. That didn't seem to help. So one time we went at Christmas, and there were like these giant 10-feet stuffed teddy bears sitting on the roof of the house, like multiples of them holding signs that said, slow down, we're watching you. (laughs) Which, by the way, they were, because they also put up cameras. They literally put up cameras in the intersection, pointed at the cars, and as cars came through the stop sign and made that rolling stop, they would post the video on Facebook of each car, publicly shaming anyone rolling through that stop sign. It's pretty savage, right? I don't know if it's helping or not, but here's, here's the image in my mind. What if you had every moment was you running through that stop sign of your life? Like, what if every moment of your life is there are people watching, there are cameras up, and they are tracking your every move, and not just your rolling through the stop sign kind of moves, but capturing even more than that, every harsh word spoken to your family member or to your roommate, a microphone that picked up all of the gossip, all of those little stories you tell about those other people and disguise them as prayer requests. Did you hear about so-and-so? We need to pray for them. That kind of thing. Or every moment that captured, a recording that captured even our thoughts, or our motives, that read our motives, we would all be in trouble, right? We are all in trouble, right? Satan wants us to see only that trouble. Look, look, look how guilty you are. The reality for Joshua is that Satan wasn't wrong, but Joshua's guilt is in no way the end of the story. In fact, we're just in verse 1 so far. Buckle up. It's so good. Look what happens next as God begins to provide a solution. The judge sees Joshua's guilt. He's very aware. And to the shock of the witnesses in the court, he rebukes not Joshua, but he rebukes Joshua's accuser. 
And he says, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? God sees and God knows Joshua's guilt. And God sees and He knows your guilt and mine, and He rebukes the accuser. Why? Well, He says why, because the Lord has chosen this Israel, this Joshua, and plucked His people from the fire. What is this? Well, this is grace. (laughs) This is grace. And it's a beautiful picture God is saying, I see and I know the guilt of Joshua and the guilt of my people, and they have suffered for their sins in exile, but I will save them from their ultimate exile. These are my people, Satan. You do not have the last word. I do. And then God does something with Joshua's guilt in what may be the most encouraging verse in the Old Testament. There's a great list that we could add it to at least. In verse 4, the angel said to those who are standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And he doesn't stop. And he says, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. It's amazing. God doesn't tell Joshua to clean himself up. To go scrub. He doesn't wait for him to get his act together. He doesn't say, go and do enough good to outweigh the bad that you have done. He doesn't say, cover your sinful, soiled garments with spiritual acts body spray and hope nobody notices. But instead, he says, I will actually remove your guilt from you. Old Testament scholar Palmer Robertson said that if sin is the root cause of the exile, and it was, then actual removal of sin is essential to their ultimate restoration. Does that make sense? If sin is the reason they were in exile from God, then actual removal of that sin would be their only hope for restoration. And this is where we see God's heart on display in this passage. Because His heart, what He longs for, is His people's restoration. He longs for your restoration. And so He deals with the root issue, not surfacey stuff. And then He says to Joshua the high priest, They're going to remove your filthy garments now. So here's my question. What did the angel do with those dirty clothes? We're not exactly told in this text, but where did they go? I think as we keep reading Scripture, many of you are already anticipating the answer. They were put on a better Joshua. A better representative of God's people than the high priest of Israel could ever be. They were put on the great high priest whose name is love. I mentioned that names are important in this passage. Joshua's name in Hebrew means Yahweh saves. And around 500 years after this Joshua comes another representative of God's people. 
Jesus Christ, whose Hebrew name is, wait for it, Joshua. Yahweh saves. And this Joshua enters into the courtroom of God, not with filthy garments, but with perfectly, righteously white robes. No stain on his record, no guilt in his life, no sin in his heart whatsoever. And he came and lived this life that none of us have lived or could ever live. And then he was accused of crimes that he never committed and he was put on trial. And he was sentenced to death. Later in the Zechariah passage, I didn't read all the way to the end of it, but later in this passage, Joshua is told that the Lord will take the sin of this land away, quote, in a single day. What day was he referring to? It's the day that Jesus went to the cross when he traded in his white robes for filthy ones. Why? So that his people might be made clean. The Apostle Paul summarizes it famously in this way when he says, it's for our sake that he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the great exchange. God made him who knew no sin to be sin. Our sins put on Jesus so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. His righteousness put on us. So where did Joshua's dirty clothes go? The same place that your sin and mine ended up, on the very cross of Jesus. If you were in Christ, it means that all of your guilt, all of it was placed on Jesus when he was hung on the cross for our sake. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. Jesus is the only truly righteous representative for God's people. He's the only one who ever lived who stood in the court of God with a record of not guilty. And yet he takes on our guilt. So God doesn't just take off our filthy garments, but He takes them on Himself. That He might give us His clean robes of righteousness because Yahweh saves. It's what He does. This is really good news. To quote Steve Dickey, quoting Sinclair Ferguson, but with a South Alabama twist, Ain't it wonderful to be a Christian? Probably sounds a lot better with his Scottish accent. But it's so true. Ain't it wonderful to be a Christian? This is the hope and the reality that is offered to any of us who are in Christ. If you're not a believer, this is the hope and the promise that's offered to you if you put your faith in Jesus. If you are, you need to know how this applies to your life. So I want to spend the last few minutes applying this in a few different ways, because if we don't learn to apply this, then we're just going to be a bunch of theological nerds with some good Old Testament stuff to reference. But how does this mean something for us? Oh, it means, it means a lot. So let's talk about it in these three ways. I want to talk about what it means for our past, what it means for our present, what it means for our future. First, our past and then our future What does this mean for our past? What it means is that for those who are in Christ, there's therefore now no condemnation. There's no condemnation for you. There's no double jeopardy in the court of God. If you are in Christ, all of your sins, all of them, have been atoned for. Not just some of them. The thing that's on your record that replays all the time in your mind 
the shame of your past and the history that you continue to feel like Satan's accusing you of, it has been covered by the blood of Jesus. That is a promise to you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Your priest has actually entered into the Holy of Holies and he laid down his own life to secure your forgiveness. The author of Hebrews picks that theme up, by the way, and he says that uh, Christ has entered into not just the Holy of Holies, but the holiest of holies. He's entered into heaven itself. And now he appears in the very presence of God on our behalf. In other words, God is very aware of the recordings of your life. He knows the whole tape. He knows the whole recording There is not one thing from your record that he's unaware of, and yet Jesus has paid for it all. He's not waiting for us to clean ourselves up. He's not waiting for us to do enough good to outweigh our bad. That's not how grace works. Grace has already come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You are actually forgiven. And so when Zechariah says there's a day coming where God will remove the sins of this land in a single day, for us, that day has come and gone. And God has truly removed your sin from his own sight, as you have been covered in the righteous robes of Jesus. I had a conversation this week with my father-in-law, who serves as a circuit judge in Alabama, and I just talked to him about court stuff. I said, I'm doing this passage. There seems to be a lot of overlap. I got some questions for you, so I kind of interviewed him about some things. There are a lot, there's a lot of things I could say about it, but one of the things we talked about is just the many similarities. It's amazing between this like BC vision and our modern court system. I'd be curious to know the history of why that's the case. Some of you could educate me later. Not now. No time for questions. But one of the things that he talked about, I asked him, what does it mean when a judge uh, dismisses evidence as inadmissible in the court. What does that mean? And he said that when evidence is considered and it's, and it's uh, you know, considered inadmissible, then that literally means it cannot be used in any way against that defendant. It's, it's done. It's out of the court. It cannot enter into the conversation in any way whatsoever. This is how God responds to your evidence of guilt that Satan wants to point out. It is inadmissible. It has been cast out and settled, if we could take it further, by another trial. He dismisses it because our record has been covered by Jesus. Or it's as Corey Ten Boom put it, when God takes our sin, past, present, and future, He buries it in the sea, and then He puts up a sign saying, no fishing allowed. It's a great picture, and that's really good news. So that's what it means for our past. Let's talk about our future for a minute. What does this mean for our future? Um, As theologians have pointed out, Jesus has saved us not just from the penalty of sin, past, and also from the power of sin, which is in the present, but He will one day save us from the very presence of sin. That day is coming. That day is coming where God will save us from the very presence of sin in our own lives. We're talking about great is thy faithfulness. If God has been faithful in the past to do what he said he would do, even in a passage like this, then how much can we trust him to be faithful to do what he says he will do in the future? God is faithful. And it's not just our sin, it's really all of the brokenness that we live in in this world that has been affected by sin. All of the experience of brokenness that we have in our lives every day. 
brokenness of personal struggles, of relationship strains and rifts, of difficulties with our physical or emotional or mental health, of addiction, loneliness, sadness, even death itself. There's a day coming. God promises there's a day coming where these realities will be no more. They will only be past. We have a picture of this, of course, in Revelation. And I just want to read one verse from Revelation 7 where God gives another vision of another future that is yet to come to John who writes, After this I looked, And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And what were they wearing, John? Curious. Oh, he tells us. They were clothed in white robes. with palm branches in their hands, and they were crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Do you hear it? Multitudes. Multitudes of people from all over the earth covered in the white robes of Jesus. Why? Because Yahweh saves. What He says He will do, He will do. And that is wonderful news promised for the very people of God. So what does all this have to do with our present? And we'll end here. Like, how do these truths affect our lives today, this week? I want to turn back to the end of the passage for a minute, because there's this unexpected outburst from Zechariah at the end that may actually help us. Um, I think it's funny, this, pa- this part of the passage, because remember what we said about courtroom reporters? There's one thing they're supposed to do. Take notes. One thing they're not supposed to do is talk. Notice what Zechariah does. He got so caught up in this moment. In verse 5, he says, And I said, wait, hold on, Zechariah, you're not supposed to speak. And I said, put a turban on his head. And they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. I think Zechariah has gotten so caught up in the amazing grace of this moment, and he knows what's at stake for Israel. Zechariah's name means something too, by the way. You know what his name means? Yahweh remembers. And Zechariah is so moved that Yahweh remembered his people. And so he screams out, put a clean turban on his head. Now, what in the world are you even talking about, Zechariah, with this turban business? Um, it sounds a little out of nowhere for us, but in this culture, a turban would be considered a sign of royalty. A sign of royalty. So not only is Joshua made clean, but he's made a prince. He's a part of the royal family. And I think it's even maybe more than that. The part of the picture here is that after all that has been done to Joshua, just think about what he's been through, even in these five verses, right? He comes into the court, he's guilty, and he knows it. He's filthy. And yet God provides this amazing exchange and this interaction, and now at the end of the passage, God is still not done with him. Do you know that What Jesus has done for us isn't just what He did for us. It's what He's doing for us. There's something very present about this. 
God is still not done with him, and so he puts a turban on his head. Because God knows that even when someone is forgiven and redeemed, the accusations don't stop. And so he even covers our head. He covers our head, our thoughts, the way we see ourselves. Satan doesn't get the last word. God does. You don't get the last thought of who you are to determine your worth and value and dignity. God does. You don't get to determine how much you're forgiven. That there's still a few other things that you feel that God hasn't forgiven you yet of. God has settled it. We don't get the last word. God does. Not even our own thoughts can condemn us if we are in Christ. Even our heads are covered by His righteousness. It is, as we sang just a few minutes ago, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see Him there who made an end of all my sin. That is true. Do you ever think about and wonder what is Jesus doing right now? What's He doing right now? Scripture tells us that He is interceding for us at God's right hand. And so while Satan stands at Joshua's right hand to accuse him, Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father to defend you. I know many of you uh, have read or are reading Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. I'm reading it for the second time right now and loving it. Uh, one of the things that he argues for in this book is that this doctrine, the doctrine of divine um, intercession, is one of the more forgotten doctrines in the modern church. What is Jesus doing right now? We so focus on what Jesus did back then, but what is he doing right now? And the author of Hebrews tells us in another place that what he is doing is that he is in a permanent priesthood. He's serving as our forever priest. The author of Hebrews puts it this way, that he is our permanent priest who is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you hear the language of that? He al- doesn't say he lived. He always lives to make intercession for them. So what is Jesus doing right now? Dane Ortland says that he is constantly hitting refresh on your record. I love that imagery. He is constantly hitting refresh on your record in the courtroom of God, interceding for us, interceding for you. I want to go through and name every single face I see. Because that is the record that Jesus is hitting refresh on in the courtroom of God, always living to make intercession. And it's not just true of you individually, this is true for us corporately. How great is it to know that it's not just us praying for the pastor search committee? Jesus is too. How great is it to know that it's not just us that's praying for our wonderful ministry, outreach, missions, opportunities, and missionaries we support? Jesus is too. How great is it to know that it's not just us praying for our session and staff and deacons and leaders in this church and praying for our worship and our programs and our children's ministry. Jesus is too. He 
He constantly lives to make intercession for us. And by the way, this isn't just true for Clemson Prez either. It's true for our friends at New Hope Baptist and Freeway and Cross Point and New Spring, Christ the Redeemer. This is not just true for the church in Clemson, South Carolina. It's true for the church across this nation and the world. Jesus lives to make intercession. That is such good news. So let me end with this question that I asked at the beginning. When someone confronts you or calls you out for something or you're convicted of your own sin, what are you going to do about it? Well, if the gospel is true, what we are to do about it is look to our great high priest. We can confess our wrong because the gospel tells us that we really are wrong. We don't have to be defensive. I don't have to be defensive. We don't have to blame shift or find other ways to bring other people down. We can see that our blame has been shifted to Jesus on the cross and our sins have been paid for and we can be honest. And we can talk about the hard things and we can say, you're right and I'm sorry. We can ask for forgiveness. We can offer forgiveness because God has given us a new record and new clothes, a new identity and a new life. And I'll just say this, it also frees us up to have real relationships. I think what keeps us so often from engaging in real relationships, even within the body of Christ, is that we still think somehow that we're supposed to have it all together. Or at least present to you that I do. But the gospel has told us that we don't. None of us do. Gosh, we're all just a bunch of sinful folks who have come to find a Savior. We all have the same problem, and we all have a common solution, and so we can have real relationships and real conversations, confess real sin, and quit all the pretending, and we can ask for help, because Jesus has entered into the hard places with us so that we can enter into the hard places with one another to give us a real hope, because His faithfulness is great in the past, in the future, and His faithfulness is great in the present. Isn't it wonderful? to be a Christian. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your word and how you intend to speak to very specific areas of our lives through your scripture. I pray that we would hear from you today, that Jesus, we really would respond in confession and repentance, but also want to honor you and worship you and love you and fight against the sin in our lives because you have already fought for the sin in our lives. And so when we hear the accusations of the evil one that are so loud and ring so loud in our lives, so many times would we hear the gospel so much louder? And would we encourage others around us to believe the same? We ask it in Jesus' name for His glory. Amen.